0: As hilarious as that music may sound, it is not how I want to kick off my podcast. Welcome to the Michael Aldrin Comedy Podcast. It's going to be so much fun when he makes humor of himself and the many things in New York City. Oh, and by the way, this is not the voice of Bruno welcome back to the Michael old Droid comedy podcast ladies and gentlemen very excited today to have one of my friends uh, on as a guest he's a comedian here that I've met in the New York comedy scene uh, you know we first started actually at Greenwich Village that's when I first met him we were booked on some of the same shows and familiar face naturally happens uh, in in the comedy world uh, quite often so we became friends and, and I'm excited to, uh, to have him on today we'll talk about a couple of things and his journey, but uh, please welcome Turner Sparks. How you doing today, Turner?
1: Good, man. How are you?
0: Doing well. I appreciate you coming out. It's good to good to connect for a little bit. It's been a little bit since we've seen each other.
1: I know it has been a while. Yeah, I don't know. It's like when you're in New York. I think everyone's running around doing spots all over the place. Do like, you ever feel like you get on a run with people where you and someone else are on the same show? Every night for a week, but then you don't see him for too much, yeah. and then it happens yeah. again. Yeah, I feel like that happened with us when we first met. Yeah, there was like
0: a bunch of shows yeah. we were doing all together. And I mm-hmm. imagine it'll, that'll probably be a similar pattern that happens it'll happen over the next year, right? several years, probably. Yeah. <laughs> you know? it's it's sporadic how it happens, but that's that's how comedy is. It's it's funny how you see, uh, some faces that you haven't seen in years. Sometimes, obviously, we're we're both in New York, but even I think out there. I started in Missouri, you know, and you'll maybe work with a comedian who's doing a lot of road work and they disappear from from your life at least for you know 7 years and then you randomly see them again, you yeah. know, whether it's on the road or say they're maybe they moved to New York. So comedy is a much smaller world than than people would think. Uh, yes, you can always get to someone else.
1: It's like one degree of separation. Yeah. With any comedian. True. You're like if you don't know them, you go on their Facebook page, yeah. and you have a thousand common friends. Yeah. You're like, oh, everyone I know knows them. Yeah. That's the I know. How yeah. long have you been in New York?
0: Uh, th- three years now. Three years. Okay. Yeah. So I've
1: been here a year, two years. Yeah. Okay. Um, but in and out the first year, but I also find there's still, someone I want ask you this, there's still a lot of people that I don't that I meet for the first time. And I have no idea how I haven't met them before. Like, people yeah. who are working every night in New York City as comedians, yeah. which is what I'm doing and what you're doing, mm-hmm. but yet still, like, two years in, there's somebody I meet, and I'm like, how did I not... And then, I, like, we're, we become friends. I'm like, how did I not know you in the last two years? Yeah,
0: yeah, and that's always... It's always nice when that happens, too, and I don't know the exact reason for that. I mean, there, there's so many comedy clubs in New York that it's natural really nice. to kind of have maybe a couple that you work... Uh, more more frequent than others and then sometimes there's overlap or you work you start working into a new club and a new scene for a little bit or a period of months and you know it's I guess there's no rhyme or reason it's just kind of what's what's uh what's working at the time right what where the opportunities are and it's, hard yeah, to, it's it's hard impossible. To
1: predict. Like one booker likes you, and so you work that place for six months, and then that booker gets fired, yeah. and then you don't work it at all, yeah. and then the new booker comes a year later, and then yeah. you're back in, and yeah. like, it's all over
0: the place. Yeah, it's definitely comedy is is mm-hmm. a bunch of doors opening and closing. I feel like at all times. Like, yes. You know, like the minute you think like a door closes, there's another random comedy door that <laughs> <laughs> opens yeah, yeah, like yeah. at the exact <laughs> same time. It's like it's it's on a like on a system where they're totally. like working together. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember when we met. Uh, you know what immediately stood out to me uh, was I actually remember the conversation. I don't know if you do, but we were we're hanging out at the Greenwich Village Comedy Club. We were doing spots there, and we were just getting to know each other a little bit. And you were humbly telling me. You know, I asked you about your past and everything, and you were very humble about it. It was funny because you were you were humble, yet it was like such a significant piece of information, right? Like you were telling me about how you you and your friends and uh, you know basically started a comedy club out in uh, Shanghai China so that was, that immediately captivated me right like starting a comedy club is is very that's a very unique thing I would say right yeah. so I'd love to hear uh, and I mean I know the story but I think that the audience would probably really like to to hear a little bit about that or what what kind of um, sparked that uh, what the impetus for that I'm sure you were just probably very curious and you know there wasn't much of a comedy scene there so you kind of said let's let's utilize our resources and make this happen right
1: yeah that's it i mean so it didn't start as a club the idea of a club was like years down the road it started excuse me it started in the end of 2009 as it's just like one show so my friend opened a bar my friend from portland who was living in the city i was in in china opened like a dive bar basically it's probably stood like 60 people seated 20. Something okay like and my f- another friend and i had been talking for a while that i wanted to do stand-up comedy or like just that we liked it we we're big fans of it we loved yeah. norm Macdonald. like i remember we used to watch like dirty work and yeah, just, like, yeah 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 that's a good one and we both he was from australia and i was from california but yet yeah, somehow we both grew up on like saturday night live saturday night live with norm mcdonald like his news Alaska, yeah you know, where yeah same age and uh so we just always talked about it and we'd be like oh we should do comedy sometime we should do stand-up But I and I had spent a few months not like every day but just every once in a while googling and there was nothing in China in the whole country there was no stand-up comedy there was like one guy had an improv group in Shanghai and I would emailed him but he would never email me back yeah. and stuff like that <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't even know yeah. I wasn't 100% sure what improv was I was like yeah. I don't know I want to do something in comedy this is something yeah. that exists and that wasn't even where I was I was in this city called Suzhou Okay. Which was, which is 50, um, 50 miles from Shanghai. So it's a different city. So it'd be like being in, I don't know, somewhere in New Jersey. But okay. Middle of New Jersey, right? Okay. Uh, and so this guy opens a bar and he hears us talking about it. And he got, he's like, Hey, if you guys want to open, if you guys want to do a show here, tell me tonight. And then I'll have, a, I'll put a stage in and I'll put lights in. Cause he had just opened his bar. He was looking for anything to kind of like, uh, just bring a crowd in, anything to make his bar unique. And he's like, really? oh, a comedy show would be cool. So it was like reverse yeah. of how, mo- usually if like, you go to a, a bar owner and you convince them to let you run a show, Yeah. this was the bar owner convincing us to do a show. <laughs> and uh, we were all drunk, so we're like, yeah, sounds good, let's do it. Yeah. And then the next day he called me at like noon, the bar owner, and he was like, hey, uh, I have a stage being put in right now you guys are on in three weeks, I've already started telling people, you better have a show ready. Wow. And so we hadn't done, the two of us had never done stand-up before. We got our two roommates Uh with us. So the four of us had never done before. We each did like, we didn't even know what we were doing. There was no light, like to tell people when we get off stage. We did like 15 minutes each. We had notes. We were just like half of it was about our friends who were there. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if, if yeah. certain people hadn't shown up, the whole show would have fallen apart. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> a lot of inside jokes. A lot of inside yeah.
1: jokes. Yeah. We just had no idea what we were doing, but it, it was packed. It was free, and so it was just like packed because there's nothing else to do in town. Yeah. And it was almost like a sideshow, like a freak show. Yeah. Like people were just going to see the spectacle. So then that got packed, and so then we were like, okay, we're going to start doing this every month. So we did it every month for a year, wow. but every month we didn't even know. Like, it was the same crowd every month. So then we had to write new material. So we did, like, a new 10 minutes yeah. every month. Yeah. And it was with no open mics in between. Like no one <laughs> even practice it. So every yeah. time we were doing it, it was yeah. the first time we'd ever done it. Yeah. And, uh, we again, we had no light. The whole first year, we didn't know that, like, you we were supposed to tell people when to get off stage. Wow. And we were just begging anyone and everyone to do it. Just so we had enough to perform to have a show. Yeah. Wow. So there's all these people who would do it two or three times and be like, I'm good. I'm not going to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone would Whoa. do it until they bombed, and then the first time they bombed, like they're 90 like, I'm done. Of people were like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think
0: people know what it feels like to bomb if they're not comedians. But anyway, keep going. It's the on worst way. feeling, right? yeah. yeah.
1: So they would do it like twice, and they do really well both times. But also, it's like the easiest cracks. It's all our friends, everything. Yeah. And the first time they got crickets. I was like, they're like, I'm out. And, uh, yeah, so we were writing all new material every week, I mean, every month. And then a year later, this guy, Andy Curtin, who's in Shanghai, uh, is an Australian, a different Australian guy. He started almost the exact same thing, but we didn't know each other. Okay. So, 50 miles away, he starts their first open mic, and they have the exact same stuff. They don't have a light, they don't know how long everyone's supposed to do, there's like six of them. But there's six of them who all wanted to do comedy. Okay. As opposed to in my town, it was me and my friend, and then everyone else. We were just begging to do it with us. Okay. It wasn't people who were necessarily inclined to do it. Okay. It was like getting getting people to join your like intramural soccer team. Yeah. Just so you have enough people to yeah. make a team. Sure. Sure. Yeah. You know, so that was the, so he had people who actually want to do it. So within two months of him starting, a year later, in two early two thousand eleven, we connect. Somebody connects the two of us. Okay. And then now we have like seven or eight people who genuinely want to do comedy. And for the next year and a half, the eight of us just put shows on in my city and in Shanghai. And Shanghai's a big, it's like a 22 million person city. Wow. So you were there, it's double the size of New York. Yeah. And so that was big enough to where we could go to like four different districts of the city, plus my city, so we could, like every weekend we were in it, we would go to those places and do a bar show. Wow. But it was all, so like every month we would come back to the same place, basically.
0: But it was just the eight of us. So it would be, you'd get on stage, what, four times a month at that
1: point? At that point. Oh, no, and I think we, yeah, and we added an open mic in Shanghai um, and in Suzhou, where I was. And so we were get, but I think we were doing those, we were alternating, like yeah. one week there, one week with me, one week there, one week yeah. with me. And those, like, no one was showing up. Like, we almost weren't even publicizing those. Yeah. Because we wanted people to come to our shows. And we didn't want, like, we're like, let's just, it was almost like just for us. Yeah. Openers. Like, a few people would come to watch, yeah. but we didn't push those at all because we're like, we need somewhere to practice yeah. so we show up in these other towns yeah. or other districts.
0: Wow. I didn't realize, I mean, that's awesome, man. Like, I, I, I knew you started a comedy club. Of, of, you, we didn't even get to that yet, right? Yeah, we didn't get to that yet. But uh, you really, like, were a pioneer on an entire scene. You know, you and Andy, it sounds like, really kind of joined forces and really pioneered uh, the the stand-up comedy scene that that probably exists out there today, right? Yeah, you you played it. Yeah. So that's what we started, yeah. It
1: was was the eight of us for the probably, from 2011 when they started, so I would say 2000, the next year and a half to two years. And we were just, like I said, we were going around, and in that group was Joe Schaefer, yeah, okay, so, in the eight
0: of Solid yeah, People. Yeah, that he were, was
1: an original at, in Shanghai, awesome. so I've known him since then. And then who's a, he's a comic in New York, we perform with all the time. Yep,
0: absolutely. He's been on my podcast, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then
1: it has got William Childress, who's a comic in um, Atlanta. Okay. he moving up here soon. Oh, great. He, was in that, he ended up moving to Myanmar and starting the scene there and then moving to Atlanta. Okay. And he does really well in Atlanta now. And yeah. then Audrey Murray, who um, is an author now in New York... Uh, and she used to do some stand-up. She doesn't do it anymore, but she, she just had a book come out. It's like, I got it at Barnes & Noble the other day. It's like really? Huge, yeah, oh, Oprah. It's like Oprah. What's the name of it? It's called uh, Open Mic Night in Moscow.
0: That's cool. She, I'll have to look into it's that. It's great.
1: Yeah, she ended up doing a year around um, Eastern Europe and Russia. Wow. Kind of doing whatever shows she could, but also writing this book.
0: Wow, that's really and, cool. And then
1: Andy, who still runs the scene in Shanghai, and also now is the head of comedy for Live Nation in Asia.
0: Wow.
1: So he books like he's book. He has Kevin Hart's tour this now. Jeez. He's running a Kevin Hart tour with Jim Gaffigan and God, uh, the French guy, Elman or whatever. I don't.
0: I actually don't know him.
1: He's like the Seinfeld of Wow. France, whatever. So he runs these massive stadium tours around. Asia. Is he
0: doing much performing anymore? Yeah, is...
1: and he still performs. He still tours. And does That's fantastic.
0: Does he, ever, does he ever book himself?
1: Not no. Cause he the, what he books is it's like a stadium. Like 15,000 seats. So he hasn't, I don't think he's allowed to book himself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's working with, uh, so you, whenever you kind of got me uh, in, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, I can always cut it, but uh, you know, whenever you gave me the opportunity and you were pulling strings, it was Andy that you reached out to. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. He still
1: runs, he still owns the club. Well, no, actually he doesn't. So we'll get to that. But he still runs the club. But really, he's so busy with Live Nation now. Yeah. We kind of have other people. That's why I like hesitate to send people to Andy because it's probably better to send it to someone who's there full time because he's kind of in and out. And yeah, out, like
0: know? Muhammad. Like, did you meet Mohammed? Yeah. Yeah. So be we be became the friends. Now. He was really nice and you know taught me a lot and. So he's there
1: all the time. Yeah. And Andy's kind of in and out because he's busy with other stuff.
0: But... It sounded like Muhammad's getting involved with some of the bigger bookings too. Yeah. What he was telling me. Yeah. So when
1: we book like New York. So, uh, we book a lot of people from the cellar or from the comedy store in L.A. So like the bigger New York and L.A. comics. Yeah. Like, um, who have we had this year? Uh, Joe Mackey came out. Mark Norman came out. Um,
0: to the Kung Fu Comedy Club in to Shanghai. Our club. Yeah.
1: yeah. So those guys wouldn't do a 15,000 seat stadium. So they would play our
0: that makes sense. Uh,
1: and we do a five-week, so, so I'll go backwards a little bit. Yeah, yeah, um,
0: connecting dots.
1: Yeah, so after we did, the eight of us kind of were doing that, we couldn't get anyone to join, like, to start doing it. It was weird. We we were, we were, like, always wanted all the, and we were getting a lot of press locally, but no one was really trying comedy. It was odd. It was just the eight of us. I would say, like, a year and a half. And then for some reason, you know how, like, college season shit, where, like, everyone moves to college or moves to a town it happens in new york as well they come in like august yeah a lot yeah, of yeah, new people yeah. come in august and the same thing happens in in expat communities around asia and everything. expat meaning like americans or foreigners who live in china a lot of new foreigners will come in around august september because okay. they're getting jobs to teach at schools. that whatever. makes sense and so after like a year and a half of that kind of like an august came around i want to say it was probably 2012 or 13. And out of nowhere, like 10 new people just started doing comedy (laughs) in our club.
0: Did they move there for comedy or did they just happen to have interest and they happened to move there? But it was
1: that. They just kind of moved there. They heard there was a club and they're like, oh, I'll come try this out. Yeah. But they were all new. It was all these people who had recently moved to town. Yeah. And maybe they had done an open mic in Idaho where they were from or something. Yeah. And so that was like, boom, instead of eight of us, there was now like 18 of us. Jeez. And it was awesome. And then the next year it happened again. And then we all of a sudden we had like thirty people Jeez. doing comedy. And then like other little rooms opened up around town. And now there's probably I don't know seventy five, maybe something like that. It's
0: like you started your own um, dojo. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and that's that's such an appropriate name, Kung Fu Comedy Club. It's like a kung fu like yeah, exactly. That type of thing, right? right? Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. And it was uh, and and so then. In mid, late or, mid or late 2012, I guess. So we've been doing it on our own for a couple of years. And Andy and I kind of realized that what's weird about, what was weird about our situation was that we all got as much stage time stage time as we wanted because we created our own stage time. Like, I don't think, I think I was three or four years into comedy before I did a show that I didn't book myself. Okay. Like, that I didn't produce myself. That wow. I didn't have to create and put wow, myself Wow, okay, on. yeah. And I remember it being, like, such a luxury. Like oh I don't you mean I don't have to like stand outside and get people to come in or whatever it is I don't yeah. have to do all this I can just show up and yeah. perform it's amazing um, but also what we learned is when there's no one better than you there's no and I'm not saying we were good I'm just saying there's no one else yeah there's no one to learn from yeah and so you kind of don't get that good because you're not what's cool about New York is you get to watch better comedians every single night and yeah whether whether you know it or not you're learning from them absolutely. Just by a certain, Pacing or whatever, Every, so many things. Everything, yeah. So Andy and I realized to get better, we were gonna have to start getting headliners to come out from the U.S. or Europe or whatever, and then we could go open for them and do these shows around around China. Um, and so we started going to other towns and finding little bars, and basically asking them if we could do a bar show there once a month, where we had a headliner come in, we sold the tickets. And then all they had to do was, they gave us the space, but they got to sell all the drinks and food and everything. Yeah. So kind of like, we'll pack your bar once a month with people.
0: Yeah. And And, you would, if you sold tickets, you could keep that money, right?
1: Yeah. And we used that to pay the comic who was coming over and all that kind of stuff. Okay. And then anything left over, we kept, right? Wow. Um, And so we got five or six different cities where they were down to do it. And we just started this tour. We started getting comics to come over and Andy and I would go open for them, plus we would give spots to Joe Schaefer and guys like that, the other local comics, as like a feature spot or all that kind of stuff. And then on the weekend, they would come into Shanghai and play our club. So that would be like Wednesday, Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they'd be out at these other cities. Yeah. And then Friday, Saturday night, they'd be in Shanghai. And all of our Shanghai comedians would come to the club. And if they were on, they were on. If they weren't, they'd come watch and hang out. Yeah. And everybody, you, not only did you get to watch them, but you got to know them. Yeah. And tons of people did. And also, it's a weird experience. When they're in a different country, they're much more willing to just hang out. Comics are anyway. Yeah. But even more so, like get to know the local comics. Yeah, they're probably and not like, just
0: going to go randomly, go to some random bar, not knowing anybody. It's like... Yeah, More they're like, comfortable. okay. It's like, hey, these are my people. That's how I felt when I went over there.
1: Exactly. Game. You're like, okay, these are my friends now. Yeah. Because I don't yeah. know anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know what to do, and I don't know where to go. Yeah. So you're like, what should we do after? And if Mohammed's like, I'm gonna go to this bar, you're like, cool, I'll go too. Yeah. To exactly. Because what's you're, you're yeah. not, and, and also it feels silly just going back to your hotel. Yeah. You, you don't want to
0: waste your time there. Right? Exactly. Yeah.
1: And so, um, so everyone's got to know these comics, and then they would come visit America, our our, our kind of local comics, and they would get all these spots based off the people they had met and everything. so, uh, And then it was also cool for our crowds, who we, we kind of built up a local following that first year and a half okay. in Shanghai yeah. and Suzhou. But it was really cool for them to now see a, a higher level of comedy.
0: Yeah. And still get to see us. You kind of were rewarding them without even planning on it, right? Totally, yeah for their support and their loyalty. Wow, that's gratifying, I would think. Like, that's that's nice to be able to give back in that way. It's mutually beneficial, right?
1: It is, and I mean, I mean we weren't like saints. They were paying, they were buying tickets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but still, and you know what was crazy? The first time we were in, in Shanghai, they kind of got it right away because I think there's just a lot of big events happening in Shanghai. They got
0: it as in they got the comedy? Or... Like, the
1: audience were like, cool, you have, because most of the time it was a co- comedian they've never heard of. Yeah. But they just kind of trusted us. And if the comedian had a credit from Comedy Central, they kind of trusted the credit. You know? Yeah. They'd be like, well, he's been on Comedy Central. I've never heard of him, but Turner and Andy like him. Yeah. So let's go see what it is. Okay. And we never really burned him. Like they it was always somebody who was really good. So then after a few months, they just blindly trusted them. Like, sure, like wow. it's gonna be good because it's always good. Yeah. But what was interesting was that in Shanghai. They got it right away, I think, because we kind of built up this equity with all of our audience. Yeah. Uh, but in Su- even in Suzhou, where I was 50 miles away, and in these other cities, these other satellite cities, the first show, it was always almost impossible to sell tickets. And the reason, this weird mentality they had, was that if you're doing something in my town, it must not be good. <laughs> because my town sucks. Yeah. It was this real, like, defeatist. Um, I don't even know what that. Or if we have that,
0: I can think of an analogy that people would hate me for, so I'm not gonna say it. But
1: is there like a Midwest analogy to that? Uh, or is there, there I, people, I I feel like uh, it's a small town thing, maybe, of like, well, you're you can't be good if you're coming here.
0: Yeah, it's it's not good if if someone looks at their own situation that way, right? Like you gotta.
1: It's definitely mentally unhealthy.
0: Yeah, it's mentally unhealthy yeah. to because it's almost like you feel like you you and your circumstance or your area is, is inferior or something. They can like you don't that. deserve it. And then you're way. and yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you're you're automatically putting down somebody that could 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 do a great thing, right? Yeah, it's like don't so, don't so, kill it. It's know? weird. So
1: that would always be the first one. And so Andy and I would say like, we just knew when we go to these new cities, we were gonna lose money the first month. And we would tell the comic like, okay, we're not expecting a lot of people in any of these places, but you're the first one, it's on us, it's not on you. And if seven people show up, we're gonna blow away these seven people and then next month there'll be 50 people. Because they're gonna go tell everybody yeah. that it was yeah. cool and it was worth it. Because what ha- the other thing was, they would see the ticket price. And the ticket price might be like $20. Yeah. And anything else in their town, there was no big events coming to these towns. Yeah. So there was no like NBA basketball Asia, or there was no theater, or there was no concerts. There was nothing at that price range. And so the only thing that would happen in their town is like Friday night would be two for one beers at the local diet bar. And so the two things that would happen, a lot of people would ask us, are our be- drinks included. And you would say, no, this is a show. And they'd be like, oh, that makes no sense. Why would I pay for something if I'm not even getting a free beer? Yeah. And then they just weren't expecting that high level of comedy or entertainment. Yeah. And it hadn't been available before. So it would come, and then uh, we'd blow them away, like 15 people, 20 people, whatever it was. And the next month, there'd be 50, 75 people. And then you'd be off and running. But you just had to, like, hit them. They'd almost feel like it was a scam, maybe, the first time, you know? You
0: you guys probably made some decent money doing this. Yeah, we made decent money, yeah. So,
1: we I mean, it was never a full-time job for either of us. I guess it was for Andy, but not successfully. He was like, I'm going to do this full-time, and then he was barely surviving. Yeah, But it was definitely, um, as a secondary job, it was great money, because I had another job the whole time, and so to do this, it was tons of, and and we were getting paid, the way we looked at it, we were getting paid to learn how to do comedy. (laughs) <laughs> and to that's meet awesome. all these comedians and make all these yeah. cool connections, and not only were we meeting comedians, but then were we were meeting their managers and agents. Yeah, because a lot of times we had to deal deal with them to book it. Yeah, and um, so we kind of got to know a lot of those people.
0: Wow, I mean that's awesome, man. Do you? So we still need to talk about how it it uh, leveraged into the actual Kung Fu Comedy Club. What? Yeah. What connected? What what connected A to B there?
1: So what happened there was. We were doing so many shows at our bar in Shanghai, Um, so it started one week a night, one night a week, and then it got to two nights a week, and then almost kind of like the Lantern in New York, where you know that's a bar, but they do comedy seven nights a week. Yeah. It's basically a comedy club. Yeah. And I think they're now calling it a comedy club. Yeah. The Lantern Comedy Club or something. Yeah. Um, So the same thing was sort of happening in Shanghai. This place where we were adding nights and adding nights. I think we got up to four or five nights a week. Yeah. And when it got to that point, we just talked to the owner, and we're like, hey, do you want to just change the branding of this? <laughs> from, it was called Massey Bar, and can we just change this to the Kung Fu Comedy Club inside Massey? And he was like, yeah, sure. So we did that, and we didn't really change anything we were doing. Yeah. We just did that, and all of a sudden, boom, it was a comedy club. And we had two rooms was really cool. Is it the
0: same place that I went to?
1: No. Okay. So then that went, so we had like a small room and we had our big room and then that went south about a year later with our disagreement with the management. Yeah. don't into. They wanted more sure. of the door than we wanted and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so Andy decided it was a better deal to open his own club full time. And that's the one you went to. Okay. So that was. So he
0: took some of his money and. Put it down, and into...
1: we got an investor, which is very cool. Okay. Um, a guy who's just a, a guy, American guy who lived in Shanghai who loved comedy. Wow. And he did it as a loan. He was like, "I'll loan you the money to open this club. Wow. Pay me back when you can, kind of thing." That's it. He yeah. didn't even
0: want uh, a, a percentage of the company, huh? No,
1: and he's been paid back and all that kind of stuff. Wow. So
0: that's uh, it's very cool that that guy did that. Very
1: cool guy. Yeah, he um, owns. A, he actually owns a hotel in New York and owns a hotel in Shanghai and all over the Sounds
0: place. like a somewhat philanthropic move in a way, just because it was kind of like... For he literally world. just liked
1: it. Yeah, and he liked having a comedy club in Shanghai and was just, like, down with the whole thing. That's awesome. So, um, so anyway, so we opened the club in Shanghai, I want to say 2014, and then since, or 13 or 14, and since that time, maybe 13, it's been five nights a week. Um, there's five English shows a week, two Chinese shows a week, Chinese language. Yeah, yeah. But what's cool about the club, and you might have seen it when you got there, it, when you went there, is the comedians go back and forth. Like uh, um, English-speaking comedians will perform on the Chinese shows, speaking Chinese. Yeah. And then Chinese comedians will perform on the English shows, speaking English. So it all kind of mixes together.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I, I remember when I was there, there was a French show too. Uh, mm. the one night, I forget yeah. the headliner's name off the top of my head. Was it the bad. British guy? He's from France. He
1: was from France. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's a, uh, so there's a big French community in Shanghai, and we have a guy, Ray Nietzsche, who lives in New York, who's French, and he's going there to headline in a couple of months, and every time we do a French weekend, it sells out immediately. That's awesome. And we do Russian weekends sometime, and those do really well, because it's a Russian community, German shows, those do well, it's a German community in Shanghai.
0: Wow, that's so. that's awesome. I, I mean, I, I think that uh, it's very worldly, right? New York's obviously very worldly, but... There's not too many shows that aren't done in English You're here. You're right. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that I really liked by being over there was it really exposed me to worldly comedy, like meaning uh, this is something, this is a trade that can be actually like harnessed and, and released around the world. I mean, it motivated me. Part of it, it opened my eyes to wanting to do things like world tours someday, even if it's not you know all in one point in time but just being able to perform more around the world right it it was it was really cool to see that circuit and that there's a whole nother community of comedians that i've never even heard of that are like going around just traveling you know traveling europe and asia and you know other parts where you know they're, they're they're making their entire living off doing comedy it was it was really cool to to be exposed to that
1: yeah, it's um, like when Muhammad is from Egypt. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And he said, growing up, do you know Ahmed Ahmed? Yeah. So Muhammad's like said his favorite comedian growing up was Ahmed Ahmed. Yeah. And it was crazy. Like Ahmed Ahmed came and did our club, and Muhammad's like, oh my god, it was a like Raymond <laughs> Seinfeld, <you know>? yeah. <laughs> like his hero. It was like doing. Wow. It. Uh, and um, yeah, there is comedy around the world. So I started out there. So I still tour Asia pretty often. And I haven't gotten to India. So like East Asia, I haven't gotten to India. Uh, but there's a whole comedy world there. And Europe, which I need to get to, but I haven't yet. But you do meet all these people kind of traveling through. And I know what you mean. It's comedians talking about the world as well on stage. Yeah,
0: you learn about what's going on in the world more, I think. Uh, it's just a, such an education all, all, all around.
1: Yeah, and the audiences too. So a lot of people ask me, like, especially in America, we have this funny way of thinking, where people will ask, is the audience American or Chinese? Yeah. Like, those are the only two options. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, And I'm like, well, there's some Americans and there's some Chinese, but our audience is also Russian, German, French, Italian, Spanish, South African, uh, Australian, Canadian, British. And so what happens is you start to see, so the German shows and the French shows and the Russian shows, those all just blasted immediately. They took off, they blew up immediately because... We saw these people coming to our club for years, listening to shows in English. And even though English is they're French people in Shanghai, English is their second language, but it's still a closer language to them than Chinese. So they're like, Cool, I'll go watch a show in English. Yeah. But if you offer them a show in French, you're like, Oh my god, now it definitely yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah Especially if the comedian you know is French too. Not that it has to exactly. be that way, but yeah, yeah they're yeah, gonna yeah. they're gonna have that that inside humor. Totally, just all the nuances. And it's something about their
1: home that like they're missing because they're not at home. Absolutely.
0: Well, that's fantastic, man. Um, I I look forward to the next time I go back. You know, I I think one of the things that I wanted to do. There's no time clock on that, or how soon it needs to be, or how long it will be from now. But for me, I want to continue to get more established in the states and hopefully build a little bit bigger of a brand to where that carries some weight, right into being able to get booked at more places uh, uh, around the world, but I really look forward to, you know, those are some of my goals and I look forward to, you know, being able to experience that, you know, that's what I'm shooting for. Um, Yeah,
1: I think a good strategy is festivals around the world. Yeah. So there's, like, our club has a good one, Kung Fu Comedy Club, it's called China International Comedy Festival. Okay. Um, In Hong Kong there's a good one. (coughs) A takeout comedy club, yeah, and then Bangkok has one. Those okay. are the ones I can think of in East Asia that are good. Great, and those are the things where you go and you meet like comedians from every scene in Asia, and they wow. get to see you perform, and then you get to meet them and you hang out all week, and then you go back, and they're helping you get shows. That's awesome. All around, you know, that's awesome. And that's a quicker, that's the quickest way to do it. Okay. As opposed to it's because it's a long, it's a long road to get. Like famous yeah, here, yeah. and then hope that someone in Asia has yeah. heard of someone here. Like, like I was saying, even the people who are well known in New York, when they come out to do our shows in Asia, most people have never heard of them. Yeah, they're just coming because it's a show.
0: Because they're probably well known in the comedy community, but there's a difference between that and being worldly famous. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like yeah. being respected and, and good at the craft of stand up comedy and known within the community, which you will be if you're good at those things, is completely different than you know commercial. Uh, recognition. Right? It, well, especially
1: globally. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. even in the States versus, versus yeah. globally. So, I know because I used to book, sell those tickets through our tours for six years. Wow. And I think the amount of people who would sell their own ticket, meaning like audiences that would come specifically for that person, it was either, it was usually people who were coming back. So, we'd had them once and then their second time. Like, they had almost made fans on the first time. Yeah. And then their second time back, people were like, I saw them last year. I'm yeah. coming back. Yeah, you know, yeah. It was that more than their first time coming out. People were like, I'm going to go see them. Yeah. The one they did, I remember Ari Shafir sold tickets his first time because Joe Rogan's, he's popular everywhere, but he's popular in Asia with all the MMA stuff. Yeah. And people knew Ari from Joe Rogan's podcast. But even that, it wasn't most of our. It wasn't, it was maybe 20%. Yeah. was fans. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's 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 a really insightful statement, right? Um, it's I think it's very interesting to see what, what it is that draws, right? What what it is that draws the crowd. Is it a repeat customer? Is it you know, recognition, is it the trust in the club, right? Like there's so many it's factors. A, yeah, it's a
1: combination of all yeah, that. And, all and the, you'll know like you show up to clubs sometimes and you have thirty people that you brought like you know, people in that town, or you have fans in that town, or whatever it is. Sometimes thirty people come out for you, and then like there's no one else. Yeah. And that's when you're like, oh, I should I should probably do a different club next time because I'm bringing everyone, the club's contributing zero. Right? Yeah. It should be some balance. Yeah. Like we always felt it was our responsibility as a club to fill the room. Yeah. And then if the comedian could add to that, that's awesome. But we never like made it their responsibility. Yeah.
0: You didn't do bringer shows, essentially.
1: No, we never did bringer yeah. shows. Yeah, yeah, And when we would book uh, these international people, like, if I'm booking somebody from L.A. or New York, I'm not going to be like, oh, well, they better fill the room. It's like, dude, they live in L.A. How yeah. are they going to fill the room in Shanghai? Yeah. If they can bring a few people, if, if a few people come out because they're fans there, that's great. But yeah. we always felt it was our responsibility. And then when you tour as a comic, I feel like the good clubs do that in the U.S., And then the, I, but a lot of them... It's flipped. Yeah. They're like, well, if you can fill it, you can do it. But if not, I'm like, all right, well, then what are you contributing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're you know. Just, right?
0: They're they're giving you the opportunity to just go up on stage and speak into the mic. That's you're, what like, they're. Lights and
1: a microphone. Yeah. <laughs> you figure that part out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm bringing a hundred percent of these people. You're yeah. selling drinks to my crowd. Friends. You know? My friends. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's
0: yeah. it's interesting how the business works like that, right? Yeah. It's uh.
1: And that's why people like uh. Oh, what's his name? Um, Stanhope. Doug Stanhope? I know the name. Okay, so he doesn't play comedy clubs anymore. Because he was doing that. He has his own following. He's a U.S. comedian. Yeah. And he built enough of his own following to where he, at one point, at some point he was like, wait, why am I still playing these comedy clubs? They're charging this service charge to my audience. Tickets are 20 bucks, but they're getting charged 27 because it's a service charge. Plus, it's a two-drink minimum. And so he just started booking his own rock clubs or just performance spaces, selling his own tickets.
0: Absolutely. And
1: doing it that way, and that's all he does now. He that's awesome. I all. mean,
0: essentially, that's kind of what, you know. I mean, I, I know Kevin Hart's famous and everything, but I think that that's part of the what he was doing is building up his following. Uh, you get a fo- you get your following, and then you just book the venue appropriate to the following. Exactly. Right.
1: And you don't need. If the club is, I think like in the old days, and some good clubs still do this, right? They'll bring an audience, or people come because it's a good club in certain cities, and yeah. Stuff like that. But um, if they're not contributing anything, they're like, well, now what are we do? Right? Yeah. It's. I think we have this uh, need, comedians in the, in the U.S. I think more so in the U.S. than I would say abroad, are tied maybe because it's like an older tradition, but really tied to this club idea. Yeah. Like, we all want to get into the comedy clubs. Yeah. We all want to be that headliner who plays all the clubs in the U.S., all the big clubs and all that. But when you take a step back and think about it, you're like, okay, well, sure, that would be great, but it's also not the only avenue. Yeah, it's not the
0: only and avenue. sometimes if you go a different route, it's easier to get into the club, right? If you, if you build that demand or whatever it is the club's looking for, um, well sure, yeah. Then in a roundabout, they'll either be coming to you, or it'll be a lot more lubricated when you come back to them and say, "Hey, I'd love to perform here," right? Because they.
1: Yeah, and there's so many different ways to do. It. If you have an audience, you'll get booked anywhere. Yeah. That, that's. It's not much of a secret, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very simple. And yeah. I remember, like, so the idea of working on a, being late night. Yeah. Like going, everyone wants a late night spot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I remember Shafir telling me that he never. I think he's done like one now in his life. But at that point, this is three or four years ago, he was telling me, he's like, I've never done a late night set. and But yet he could sell out all these clubs, so who gives a shit? Like the clubs don't care if you've ever done a late night set. Yeah. He had his big podcast, right? His podcast gets yeah. like 250,000 downloads a yeah. week or whatever it is. So if you have your own following, nobody cares.
0: So basically what Turner is saying, guys, is that you the listeners are extremely valuable and i just yes. i don't i don't want to show any underappreciation i truly you guys are my following you're my family and uh, thanks for sticking with me and for for you know hearing all, uh, about all these cool things that um, you know that are going on so yeah anyway <laughs> no 100% <laughs> got to give you guys a shout out can't you know i can't not acknowledge that cuz it is very true the money and the value and all these things the priceless part is the following right the audience the people that are into you, your fans your supporters that's that's where the gold is
1: yeah and this is a great way to stay in touch with them and retain them I think a lot of obviously we want to focus on our act right you want to build an act yeah but the reality is you need a following as well and those go hand in hand the better your act gets it should be the bigger your following gets but not necessarily if you're not if you're not
0: marketing it properly or doing the work of like being personal staying
1: and in touch with your community, yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I completely agree.
1: So it's all of it.
0: Yeah. I was gonna say, uh you recently you and Joe and a couple others uh performed at the comedy cellar. Uh they they brought you guys in and the show was in Chinese, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. I'd love to hear about <laughs> that. That's a huge that's a huge deal.
1: It was a huge deal, yeah, it was very cool. Um we were in, so it's, it's like the story of my life, which is like, you work, you're like your whole life. is like, I want to put the Comedy Cellar. Yeah. And then they're like, cool, you can come do it. And you're like, really? And they're like, yeah, in Chinese. Like, <laughs>
0: yeah. hey you know what though? Pictures of you on stage at the Comedy Cellar, uh, the marketing, the experience, there's no, there isn't, dude, yeah. doing it in Chinese, that's fantastic. It's cool.
1: I know. It's cool. It's just like one step harder. Right? Yeah. <laughs>
0: well, you know what though? It's, it's. It's a great thing, though.
1: It was cool, and I'm really happy to do it, and hopefully uh, Ronnie Chang and and Des Bishop kind of put it together, and they say they want to do it again. So I just need to, but now we're back to the 2010 in Suzhou, China, where we're doing this thing once in a while without doing open mics in between. Yeah. Do you know what I mean?
0: But you know what? The good thing is, though, since you're in New York, even if you're doing that show once in a while, Yeah. You, ha- you're connected here though, right? So you are doing, open- you're doing shows. You're doing, I'm doing open- shows, but in English. I'm doing that in oh, Chinese. Oh, well, if you wanted to though, right? Like I'm sure you could, you could figure out a way to like set up a practice thing for doing them in Chinese. Well, we right? were
1: talking with Craig out at the Misfit Hive. Yeah. We almost might start doing that. That's it's cool. literally just... just going out there once a month, picking a day, even if it's like five o'clock at night. Yeah. Even if there's eight people there or zero people, or it's just us. Yeah. Like just going around and doing our sets. To try to um,
0: build an act. Stay, stay sharp, build it, build it back up.
1: Yeah, I actually think we should do that. So it was cool. So it was myself, Gus, jo, Gus, Gus Tate, Joe Schaefer, Jocelyn Chia. I don't know if you know her. She's uh, Singaporean-American. I don't think I do. Um, so she speaks Chinese because her family's Singaporean Chinese. Okay. And then Desarrani. So Ronnie. So here's the weird thing about that show. I don't know if you heard about it. But uh, we get there, and the Comedy Cellar people are like, okay, so um, – Half the people here showed up not knowing... This is right before the show. Not knowing this show was going to be in Chinese. Okay. They just bought tickets to the Comedy Cellar. They don't know what it is. They, they, they were inside
0: speak. and still don't know. They were literally... The room was full. It was sold out. And the and some of the people in the audience still didn't know. Half.
1: <laughs> they said half these people had no idea what the show is, didn't know you were going to be doing a show in Chinese. Don't speak Chinese. The other half of these people came specifically because it is a show in Chinese. Okay. And they go, all right, so just go figure it out. And then they, like, push us, and then the show begins. Like, just you guys can do it, you know? They, like, yeah. push us into the oh room. Oh, my goodness. So Dez and Ronnie decide to host together, and, because they also don't know what to do. So they go ba- they go up on stage together and, like, are going back and forth, like, language to language. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of, work. it is working. Like, but,
0: English to Chinese?
1: Yeah, but almost like Dez will ask Ronnie something in Chinese, Ronnie will respond in English, and then they'll go back to Chinese and back to English. And with two people, you can kind of get it done, because wow. one can translate while the other one's saying, yeah. what the other one's doing. And they were just kind of riffing, and it was um,
0: Brilliant, off, it sounds like. Cup. It was brilliant. That sounds like a great, I didn't think there was a solution to the problem, and that sounds like.
1: <laughs> so that was a great solution. Yeah. And then I'm up first. And they're like, okay, Turner, now you're next. And so they call me up, but I'm by myself. And I'm like, okay, now what do I do? So I, for, I turn my first joke in Chinese, and, like, obviously it works for half the audience. But yeah. half the audience is not great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so then I kind of pause. I'm like, I don't know what to do. And everyone's laughing. I'm trying to figure it out. Uh, and I think I just, like, riff for another minute or two. And then... I in just, Chinese? I can't remember. English or Chinese? I think Chinese... And then back to English. And then at one point, I tried to translate what I had just said, and that was like the worst idea because that slows everything down. Yeah. And then I ended up with a couple jokes, and I, it was like back and forth, and back and forth. It didn't go very, it didn't go very well. I wouldn't say it was like the worst thing ever, but because the crowd was in on the idea, like there's like almost, what are you supposed to do? You know, there's like yeah. nothing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then Gus goes up next, and Gus just does the whole set in English, like literally no Chinese. <laughs> And then I was I was off stage I was like well, wait wait a second like the whole deal that we got into the comedy cellar was cuz we had to do it in Chinese Gus just like game the system he did well Yeah cuz the Chinese people, speaking people also speak English Yeah we kind of found uh, out okay know? okay uh, but it wasn't on the theme at all and then Joe closed it Schaefer closed it and Joe had all this old material that he hadn't done in years that was like he used to do in China where it was like a little bit back and forth like the punchline of yeah. being Chinese with the joke in English so wow. he did all that, and it went really well.
0: That's awesome. So it was the three of you guys that did Oh, and it.
1: Jocelyn. She did. Okay. I think she did. She opened with, like, one-liner joke in Chinese, and then did her set in English, and then closed with a one-liner joke in Chinese. Like, everyone was trying to figure it out as we were going along, you know?
0: Well, that's awesome, and it sounds like, you know, if they're going to have you guys back, that, uh...
1: It would, yeah. If they have us back, hopefully it's all in Chinese. That would have been way easier, just to do a show yeah. with all Chinese people. Uh, or Chinese-speaking people. So hopefully we can do that again. Because it is this... There's a ton of Chinese people in New York City. Yeah. And there's no comedy for them. So it would be awesome if we could get it going.
0: You could advertise in Chinatown for it. Totally. If you wanted to. Yeah. Right?
1: And like NYU, there's a ton of students who are Chinese. Absolutely. You know, Chinese like student associations and all that kind of stuff.
0: Maybe... Uh, and if... You know, this is just an idea that's coming to my head, but like if you're looking for other potential options to start a, either a practice thing or whatever, maybe find a, a venue in Chinatown. Right? Yeah. Like just uh, Yeah, that would be cool. You know, maybe a hotel, I don't know, you know Yeah, or, just bar, somewhere to start it up. A bar. I mean, yeah That's a good idea. Yeah, we have could... a
1: stage or we can figure out some kind of stage yeah. know, or something. That's awesome. Okay, but I wanna ask you about college football. You're the only person I know who played college football. I've been a college football fan Awesome. since I went
0: to University of Miami oh wow and okay 2000 to 2004 that's a that's a big deal what do you know about that Miami yeah. exactly <laughs> ballin' boys Her, hurricane balling boys <laughs> what yeah. do you know about Miami boy 7th floor crew yeah man I remember <laughs> listening to that when I was playing high school football and you know it would pump us up When I was in high, yeah, when you were there, then you guys were on top of the, on top of the world at that time, We were, I was there 2000 to
1: 2004, so we, my, my four years, we were second, we finished second in the nation, first in the nation, second in the nation, fifth in the nation.
0: I remember, I remember watching uh, stuff, you know, I mean, I, you know, Miami would have been one of those schools that every, every high school kid dreamed of getting a scholarship to. I remember seeing some like reality TV stuff or, you know, them like jumping in the ice baths after practice and. When I finally, you know, my dream came true of being able to be a part of a Division One football team at Mizzou and getting to live those things, you know, that I was watching on TV, having the ice baths and screaming about how painful it was, but in a joking way with the guys and just, you know, all the things that you, you kind of imagine as a kid wanting to play Division One football, uh, it was a real, you know, just a fortunate opportunity. It's amazing. You know? When were you there? Uh, I was the, I was on the Tiger football squad. So I was actually a sophomore when I walked onto the football team. Uh, my freshman year was completely dedicated to track and field, and it was the first year of my life. I started playing football when I was eight years old, and, there, and I played for 14 years. The only year I didn't play was my freshman year of college until my career truly ended from an injury. But uh, I, I ran track and... Indoor track and actually one season of cross country training for track that freshman year of college. Oh, college, college yeah. was in right, And they cool. were like, "Look at this football player out here running like the five <laughs> mile cross country race, about to have a heart attack." You I was know? gonna say cross
1: country gotta yeah. pretty skinny. Yeah, yeah. I was like the, the buffest <laughs> dude out there, you know. Uh,
0: it was definitely you know uh, a challenge, but I I didn't do terrible at it, and uh, but my heart was in football, right? Um, and I I just I I needed to go back I I actually risked a lot Uh, there was no guarantee that I was even going to make the team for the Tiger squad and I had to change my training for like six months to change my body my eating habits and everything just to get back into football shape and there's no guarantee that I you know it's like breaking up with a girlfriend hoping that you know that the girl you realized you truly like will accept you yeah yeah um you know without without it even being guaranteed but it's kind of like you take that risk because your heart you know is in it and that's that's what I did and the current head football coach of the University of Missouri's name is Barry Odom he's the one that I had been talking to at the time and he was even apprehensive about it. he was the head recruiting coach I came to him I called him on the phone I wanted to meet him you know I actually quit track before I uh, went in and met with him in person and, and he was like look I we're, we don't want to compete with the other athletic departments here you know yeah. we, we don't want to be stealing athletes we want to be respectful of, of each department I said honestly you're, you're not stealing me I, I quit track you know yeah. I quit track I want to play football football is where my heart is and we shook hands and it was like one of those real true handshakes and he said let me see what we can do you know uh, and you know there was still a process to it. It wasn't like the final thing, and I knew that it was possible. Like I said, that I still wouldn't make the team after all that training that I had changed and all these things. And it's like, if they if, if I didn't get you know the opportunity to actually walk onto the Tigers, I would have been pretty <laughs> devastated. You know, it's like, what do I do? I go back and run track now? You know, yeah. like what do I do after like changing everything, changing my entire life for this? So I'm very thankful that I had that opportunity. I got to walk on in the fall of 2006. Uh, I, I joined the season when the Tigers really started to turn things around. And then 2007 is when we just, we, we, we took off like a shooting star, right? Like 2007 is when we, at one week we were, we were ranked number one in the nation. Uh, I don't know if wow, Mizzou really? had ever been that. Yeah, it was the week going into the big 12 championship game against Oklahoma. Um, you know there was a lot of volatility that year in who was competing for the number one spot in the country. There was a lot of teams getting knocked off, and people, you know, capturing it. And we were, we got in right at the end of the season. We got it going into the the Big Twelve Conference Championship game. Uh, if we would have won that game against Oklahoma, we would have gone to the Nap- national championship as the number one seed, uh, and that's what we all wanted, right? I mean, Missouri, the the, the entire state of Missouri was just humming with excitement. I my last podcast I had Sean Witherspoon on, or two podcasts ago, uh as my guest, uh, and he, you know, he played for the Falcons. We talked about Atlanta, so he, he played with them for like 6 years, and we were just reminiscing on what it was like for the entire community of of Missouri really uh during that time. You you get national attention like that. I mean, I met Troy Aikman at the Cotton Bowl and, you know, he was telling me how he's, he had been following the Tigers for the last few months, right? That's he's awesome. like, I've seen you guys doing well. I'm like, man, <laughs> what's up, Troy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what up, Troy Aikman? Did uh, <laughs>
1: did you play? I mean, were you recruited at high school?
0: Uh, so my high school career is kind of a unique thing, and this is not to make an excuse. Uh, my dream was to get a Division One scholarship. I, I I had a couple smaller schools contact me, but our school was really a running. Program. Yeah. Um, you were a receiver. I was a wide receiver. We we were a power powerhouse smash mouth football team, okay. and uh, I didn't get too many opportunities to you know to, to showcase my athleticism. They did give me some opportunities. There was one game where they opened up, you know, started giving me a chance. They said, I want to see what Oldroyd can actually do because you know he makes plays in practice and whatnot. And it was my junior year, and I was able to break the school record, right? Like, I had 190 yards receiving for, you know, I think it was five receptions. So, like, the average... Jeez. Four or five... I think it was four receptions. So, I think my average, you know, yards per catch was 45 yards. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it wasn't an... You know, I was, like, a all-conference receiver, nothing special. I was all-state in track. You know, my... I think, naturally, I was a little bit more gifted in, in track. Um, but... Uh, I didn't. I didn't really market myself. There wasn't big schools coming to me. Uh, to answer your, your question, in yeah, a, yeah. In a, in so then
1: you just went to Missouri for track, and then quit and they walked on.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: What you used to at Miami. I heard is when they ran out of uh, when I was there when they ran out of football scholarships. Yeah, they, the coach would put them all on track scholarships. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. And they
0: that's very interesting. And that's
1: how they like overstack those 2001-2002 teams. Uh, so like Santana Moss, do you remember him? Yeah. He went all through college on a track scholarship.
0: You know what? That's very interesting. I I'd, But they I, would
1: have to then go run track. They would have to do it.
0: I'd be interested in actually knowing how the... How, there's a thing called Title IX. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what? I'd be curious to know how that intertwined because they only have a few boy like male I said not boy but male scholarships that they can actually give out in track because football takes up so many spots and then women's sports right women's sports uh have to to equal out the number of boy sports scholarships as a whole yeah and there's no female sport that has like 80 scholarship spots like football does so like what happens is, is every other sport on the guy's side becomes extremely difficult to get so a full resume. I know what they
1: did in Miami because I okay. knew these people. Okay. I only know from personal experience, I don't know, I can't back this up with 100%, yeah. but every, like all the girls in my dorm were scholarship for crew. Okay. So I think what Miami would do was just give women all the female like athletes yeah just everybody got a full ride for everything <laughs> so they could the way they beat that is because they they didn't want to bring down the amount of football scholarships they gave out so they yeah. just brought up the amount like they didn't wow. want to bring down the am- amount of male scholarships so they just brought up the amount of female so like I knew a ton of girls who were, were on a crew and uh, tennis and all that like they were all on full rides yeah and then the men's crew was a club sport yeah and so the women <laughs> cause I knew people on both. So like yeah. the women's crew, they'd go to a meet, you know, and you'd have men and women at the same meet. Yeah. And the women's team would be flying and the men's team would be like in a bus driving yeah <laughs> like yeah that's hours. our
0: cross country team didn't get the football money i can tell you that much when i was at Mizzou. yeah <laughs> you know and so was, i don't i can't back that up that that's yeah. 100% but i just, from my experience i know that a ton of the
1: women got scholarships and that makes sense That's probably why yeah
0: well that's very interesting they're there's really a, there's a way of like manipulating it out. the system you know <laughs> yeah. they're, they're making it work well there's uh, you don't get to the number 1 spot in the nation by fluke or by chance i mean it's It's very calculated, and the amount of work and strategy and everything that goes behind it is is just countless hours of, of, you know, sweat, just, just, uh, it's unbelievable. Just, just from one person, right? The the year that we were successful, it was January 1st to January 1st, 2007 all the way to January 1st of 2008, and I remember, actually, I have my cotton bull ring around here somewhere, but I remember, like, when I got that, after we won, like, just like thinking about like all the work that we had put into it just myself as an individual before even calculating everybody else is like like compacted down into that ring is you know is kind of how I saw it it's like a representation it's like this thing is like a you know it's uh, it's not a, a diamond literally but metaphorically like a diamond as in like when you think of a diamond being compressed 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 to fit it in like this tiny space like that's all the work that we had put into it. I mean, like, you, you learn I, I, you learn to push yourself beyond what you think is even possible for you. Right?
1: Yeah, and what are the chances of a same group of people the next year duplicating that work? Yeah, to do it again.
0: Now you're, now you're bragging about Miami, huh? <laughs> no, no 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 no. We didn't do it. We didn't do Oh it. yeah. We didn't. It's win very back-to-back. difficult. It's... What I'm
1: saying is that the back to back things seem so difficult. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So the, then I mean... say to have the mental like like capacity to, or energy to be yeah. I'm gonna all that thing I just did, I'm gonna do it again. Yeah. For another year. Cause you kinda wanna be like, oh yeah. It's done.
0: Well, you, you, you do, and when you, you, know, when you look at guys, we, we could even take this to the NFL conversation, you know, guys like Tom Brady, who have, you know, I was talking to my buddy on the phone last night, actually, one of my friends who I ran track in high school with, his name's Paul, Paul Stemmerman, shout out to you, buddy, uh, we, were, we were laughing, he was like, I was watching this thing about Tom Brady and his obsession uh, toward uh, football. Right, and he's yeah. like, I, I was watching that, and I started laughing. I thought about it. he told me he thought about me, and that we'd be having a good time together. He's like, because Tom Brady, like when he goes on vacation, he flies his teammates out, and they will like suit up, like in pads, on the beach. No and be, like, way. Rats on the beach. That can't be true. Like, like it's it's Vince it's a will never forks, ender, it's a pass. Yeah, like well, like I don't know what gear <laughs> they'll actually be wearing, but it's like serious. And it's, it becomes it becomes like this part of your psyche that is indestructible I don't know how to explain it like but you you learn to like change the shape of your mind uh, in my opinion when it comes to the dedication required for for like high level success on, on that level it's it's insane I, I remember I was working out one time in the gym like in the rec center which is now where the football players practice, we have our own facility, but I I went there, like, in the off season or something, and one of my buddies saw me, like, doing pull-ups, and he was, like, I'm not, he's, like, I'm not astounded by the number of pull-ups you did, what I'm astounded by is I could tell when you hit, kind of, the wall, right, of where most people would stop, Yeah. and he's, like, you, it's, like, you turned up this dial in your head, and you just blew past that right it wasn't the physical accomplishment it was watching how my mind like I guess he could see like that I you train your mind to push push beyond where the normal person stops and and to not even like almost like you, you you like hit the accelerator through it you know what I mean
1: do you know Ron Artest the basketball player
0: uh, I, I know the name. He's the guy who
1: ran into the stands in Indiana and punched the fans. <laughs> really? He's a real maniac. Okay. But he has, and he's also just like a crazy person, but he yeah. has this great quote. They were like, when you get tired, but he's known for just never running out of energy yeah. as, a, as a player. It's like yeah. the hardest worker on the yeah. court, you know? Yeah. And they were like, when you get tired, like, what do you do? And he's like, oh, no, he's like, they were like, you don't seem to get tired like most players. What happens? And he's like, oh no, I get tired like everyone else. But when I, when I get tired, I just get more energy.
0: <laughs> which makes no sense it sounds like a Bobby Knight potential quote you know <laughs> yeah 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 that's, that's but hilarious but it's like it's kind of
1: what you're talking about yeah you get this
0: thing of like well I don't want to cut you off of yeah, your, no, but good. one of the things I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast before but uh, something that I learned from from the way our coaches trained us, uh, and something I think that anyone can apply to their lives, and I think it's actually a, a, a positive, a very positive takeaway. And we could probably end on this, unless you have other thoughts. But um, we would get up for weights a few days a week. I remember during the football season, we'd still have to get up at like we we would start our lift at six or six thirty. There's two sessions that you could pick or choose to come to, right? And we would actually, I think it was two days a week during the season. Off season, it's, it's more than that, right? But during the season, weights are separate than practice, it's separate than film, it's separate than travel for, for everything, separate from games. And we would have to be down in the practice facility. We had a, a certain uniform that we had to wear, right? Like it's not like you just show up feeling, w- like throwing is available. You get everything down to the socks, the shoes that are team issued, the shorts, the shirt that has to be tucked in and you had to be there before 6 a.m on the dot because when those when the weightlifting coaches arrived if you weren't there and enthusiastic uh it's you're immediately going to start getting punished right like if you if you aren't excited so so the takeaway that i'm trying to get to the point that i'm trying to make is we were required to scream and clap the top of our lungs Uh, we would hear when the coaches were like right outside the doors like six on the dot and we're like all right guys, we. you guys ready? Like, let's turn yeah. it up, right? And we are like, yeah! Like, like, I mean, to the point where, like, you have to do it to the point you can't breathe and you have to be... It, it's the most excessive, obnoxious, fake thing that you could ever imagine when it's 6 a.m. and you can't even sleep. And if you didn't show 100% max enthusiasm, you're punished. And the takeaway for me is that when you do that, when you clap through the negative. When you when you force yourself to be enthusiastic regardless of whatever terrible circumstance you feel, it it like shifts your mind. Like it causes actual enthusiasm to start to transpire. Wow. Even if it's not like initially real. It becomes real because you create it. Even if it's because you're thinking this is so stupid that I'm laughing right now. Yeah. But that laughter almost triggers it to start to become real. Yeah. right and then all of a sudden you're you're going all out you know in your workout and we would have guys like it's so like we get under the the squat rack and we would like give me some heat because i mean they would have us lifting a lot of weight this is not chump stuff like i would look at they would choose the weight that you're doing based on it, your body composition they're tracking everything so they know exactly how far to push you at what time of the year and like I, you'd look at the weight and you don't want to like back down from it. You're like, man, I've never like lifted this much. Like, <laughs> they want me to do twelve reps of this. <laughs> Jeez. Jeez. It's outrageous. And like, you're like, dude, give me some heat. And your buddy just come up and you just smack you on the back of the neck. Ah, like man. as you're getting in the squat rack, it, if you wanted it, but yeah. it like it's like whipping the horse or something to run faster. It honestly like creates this surge of energy, and like it forces you to like get under the squat rack and just start going crazy. Oh you my know. God so like it's insane man that's it really awesome. is yeah so. <laughs> I might
1: have to do that some point yeah. right before a show yeah <laughs> like, alright give me
0: some <laughs> <him."> <laughs> I'll be there for you but yeah that's the takeaway guys be enthusiastic because it can become real so uh, do you have anything else Turner anything else that you wanted to talk that about that sounds great that's a great way awesome. well I've really enjoyed having you and I think it's a real treat to, to learn about your story uh, there's a lot that I've learned that I'm actually going to take and of scribble down actually I do have one last question I know yeah. we got to get going but is there anything applicable that you felt like you could take away from your journey in China that you currently do um, put into your mindset here in New York right like you're yes like
1: so it's that like I was saying earlier that the first few years of my comment of comedy I never did a show I guess I did probably but I would say 90% of the shows I did, I performed on I created the show yeah I was running the show there were times where I would be selling tickets and hosting a show at the same time so I'd be working the door and then a comic would finish I'd run on stage and bring up the next comic and then run back off stage and keep selling tickets and it's that the work ethic that a show doesn't happen unless you make it happen yeah is my ba- still my baseline for comedy and so if I ever get to do a show that I'm not creating and as I'm saying this I'm literally going to a show tonight oh, in okay. Brooklyn that I run I hope no I'm no not no it's not it's, a, it's in the okay. Cool. but I run it and so if I ever get to do comedy that I don't create it's like this crazy treat but it's not what I expect yeah and also I, I think nothing happens unless you create it yeah and I don't think comedians should expect things to happen unless they create it yeah and so still a lot of my I work I wor- full-time as a comedian, and um, make my living off of comedy, and almost all of that is off of me cold calling, or whatever you want to call it, all these different places and getting my getting my schedule together, and giving them a price for how much it would be to get me to come perform, whether it's a private show, a corporate show, or a club show, whatever it is, I push myself onto everything. I don't have any agent or management yeah. or anything like that. And I know a lot of comics who, uh, are good in New York City and spend a lot of time kind of wondering like well, why why doesn't it happen to me why doesn't someone find me and I think no one's ever gonna no one finds us yeah that's not you're waiting we're waiting for something that's I was hoping happen. that
0: would happen for me in football and okay. that's, that's a huge lesson that I learned. And you, you went I needed to, to market. I needed to create a highlight tape myself and send it to colleges and big universities, universities if I wanted them to notice me.
1: But then you went to Missouri and you knocked on the guy's door and you got a yeah, meeting. Yeah. And then boom, you're on the team. So that allowed me
0: to become a walk-on there, right? Yeah.
1: And so I think I have the same mentality with any... And I had a business in China where it's also the same thing. So I have the same mentality with a small business mentality to kind of... That's great. Which is, um, so that's totally what I've have taken to. from that. And it's allowed me to work professionally as a comedian for the two years I've been here. And still, like, most people have no idea who I am. And that hopefully will come at some point, but it yeah. doesn't necessarily have to. Yeah. Um,
0: Are you, you, you must do a lot of um, road work then, outside of the city?
1: Yeah, I do. So, I mean, I literally, I was late here coming to you because I had four, Emails coming back at me from people I'd emailed earlier in the week and they're asking for more videos to come do their events. That's fantastic man. And so I was kind of sitting there trying to get everything Yeah. and calling people yeah. and stuff like that. And so I spent a certain amount of time doing that. And I think we can all do it. Really. Yeah. I don't think there's any reason why not to.
0: Yeah. I feel like I'm pushing myself to do that more and more every day. Uh, you mentioned comedy festivals being a good entry point for the world market i feel like that's also good for us right like i uh, i think doing comedy festivals in the us can help sure help yeah. as well so that's a random statement and a random way to end. But, <laughs> but it's well, the definitely... idea of like
1: no one's gonna no one's gonna come and knock on your shoulder and be like, hey, do you want to be famous?
0: Yeah, and and that's that's a good takeaway or for the even, listeners. Do you want to have
1: a career in comedy? Who cares about famous? Yeah.
0: But do you want to do you want to
1: make your living into a comedy? That's not like some switch you flip and it happens, right? Yeah. It's like in us, we gotta go yeah. make
0: it. It's the same, and I think that's a great takeaway for the listeners. Whether you guys out there are comedians or aspiring comedians or just interested in comedy but you know pursuing a passion of yours like i think the takeaway truly is you, you got to make it happen right you you, you got to you got to be the one to take it onto your shoulders and, and stop waiting around for someone to discover you or like how, how much potential you have i think we all have so much potential uh you got it you got to be the one that not only unlocks that but shows that to the world and, and shows it to the people that are going to be able to, to to put you in the position that you want to be in so so, super super positive way to end but uh, I tried doing this before I'll try again, Turner it was awesome having you thanks thanks for sharing uh, all your stories and, and insight and your journey and uh, I hope you all have a good week, thanks for tuning in and until next time, take care guys, peace
1: peace bye bye,
0: thank you for listening by the way, am I the only one who's horny? <laughs> <laughs>